Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, I'm joined by reporter Daniel Rothberg, who talks with me about the Calder Fire, which threatens South Lake Tahoe and has displaced thousands as mass evacuations take place. After that, I interviewed the Nevada System of Higher Education Chancellor Melody Rose, who told me about vaccine mandates for students and possibly employees and mental health efforts made by the system of higher ed. At the end of the show, reporter Sean Galanka has a story for us on the wedding industry in Las Vegas coming back after a slow year last year. He talks with the Clark County clerk, Lynn Goya, and more as Vegas approaches its five millionth marriage license issued. We are using all of our resources, everything we have at our disposal, in uh, coordinating closely with Cal Fire, the lead for the Calder Fire, to ensure that the health and safety of all of our residents protect structures, including homes and businesses, and our beautiful Lake Tahoe. So uh, we've had a, a slew of fires in the past couple months in California area, and we've been getting a lot of smoke up in the Reno area that's also drifted all the way over to the East Coast to DC and New York. They've seen some smoke from some of the large fires that we've seen here. Right now, the Caldor Fire is threatening South Lake Tahoe. The Dixie Fire has been threatening large areas north of Tahoe for a while. And I'm joined by uh, our reporter Daniel Rothberg to talk about all the all the fires that have been going on. We've been uh, doing some reporting and it's uh, it's been a bit harrowing for some people. So Daniel, how's it going? It's going, it's going all right. How are you, Joey? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, it's, it's been, I think a little bit scary to see these, these flames, these pictures from, from the area, seeing ski resorts on fire. I think the first thing I want to talk about is when it comes to fires, Tahoe is, is pretty, pretty high up elevation wise. It's a relatively cooler climate compared to Reno. Why doesn't Tahoe normally see these huge fires like we're seeing right now that are getting close to it? Well, Tahoe has seen some large fire activity in the past, and a a forest management expert could probably speak to it better than I could. But in, in the past, some of the large neighboring fires around the Tahoe Basin and the Tahoe Basin that is surrounded by a lot of forests have not come into Tahoe. That distinguishes those fires from this fire. This fire is the second fire in known California history to crest over the Sierra and come into the basin. And that makes it really notable. And it's a testament to kind of the conditions and the the wind patterns that we're seeing and just sort of the dry fuel load that is obviously a result of the drought that we've been seeing in the West, which is also tied to our changing climate. I think this fire is a really significant one. If you look at a map and see where it started, it started miles and miles away from the Tahoe Basin. I mean, this this fire has burned more than 200,000 acres. So if you just think about one acre and multiply that by 200,000, I know that's very basic, but it's a good way of visualizing just the vast scope of the burn of this fire. And only a part of that is burning in Tahoe that started pretty far away. And it's just significant when you see these mega fires and we're seeing more and more each year in the West. Of course, if you talk to anyone in forest management, this is not just a story about climate and dry conditions. It's also a story about management and how we fight fire. Yeah. And it's also a story about people, right? There's a lot of people that are being affected by this. And let's talk a little bit about the evacuations that have been going on. Something that people in South Lake Tahoe have been preparing for a while, but 
they don't have to do very often. Talk to me about the, the mass evacuation out of South Lake Tahoe, where those people are now and how they're feeling. Right. The closest analog in South Lake Tahoe is the Angora fire, which burned toward the Southwest area of, of South Lake Tahoe. And that burned about 3,100 acres in 2007. A smaller amount of the population had to evacuate. In this case, they have evacuated all of South Lake Tahoe parts of the Nevada side. And there are people in the Valley side that are on notice as well in Nevada. I should say we're talking Thursday morning, so I don't know when this podcast comes out, what the conditions are going to look like. But an evacuation on that scale anywhere, I think I I read about 53,000 people have been evacuated, is going to be really significant. And it's going to exacerbate existing problems. Obviously, an evacuation is needed. It's important that they're doing this out of taking this precautionary step. But for a lot of people, it's really, it's difficult to just leave your home, not work. Some people don't have gas to make it all the way to Reno. Some people don't have vehicles in South Lake. And all of those factors just add to the strain and stress of already wondering if you're going to lose your home, what possessions you need to take if you're going to come back. And I think that's, that's you know, been really important. And I think it's important for people to remember South Lake Tahoe is a tourist destination. There's a lot of glitzy things about going down to the lake. You see these big boats and you see docks and piers and buoys and ski resorts. The median income in South Lake Tahoe is lower than it is in other parts of California. And this is an area where I would say a majority of local residents live and do essential services for the community who are being impacted. It's not just tourists from San Francisco or remote workers from New York or the Bay Area that have come and moved in over the last couple of months with the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. And let's hear from some of those evacuees now that you talked to down in Carson City. Yeah. I spoke to evacuees at the Carson City Community Center, Carlos Arce. Uh, Sunday, around 3 p.m. So the, the policemen knocking out door and they says, they need to, you have to leave in. It's a little bit crazy. I living in town for 18 years. It was so beautiful. We never believed the fire reaching us. What are you thinking about just for the next couple of days coming up? And... Uh, what I'm feeling is probably we, we, we never know where, where, happened, or where we're going mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. We don't have money to pay hotel or something like that, you know? We've talked about people, but let's also talk about structures, right? That's a lot of times what what fires are threatening. People can generally get out. Obviously, some people have been hurt. I think last I read, there were about five people that were were injured during this fire. But what what structures have been damaged or destroyed or, or are being threatened? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a little difficult to say because these are such dynamic situations. And a lot of the assessment goes on after the fire has moved out of an area. That said, the report I saw last night, Wednesday night, was that more than 700 structures had been destroyed by the fire. That includes commercial buildings, residences. And I should also note that that includes the whole span of the fire, not just the parts that have burned in Tahoe. People are keeping a close eye on 
where the fire is moving. And so far, it appears from news reports and other reports that some of the, these bigger areas like Christmas Valley and Myers and then South Lake Tahoe, a lot of these structures have been protected and spared by really kind of heroic and tremendous work that firefighters have been doing. There's another side to this, which is the effects of the fire on the landscape and the destruction that that the fire brings there. And that also is difficult to assess at this point because fire is part of the natural regime of forests, but these mega fires in some cases are outside of, of those realms. To get back to what I was saying is depending on how these burn scars develop, where they are and what parts of the basin they affect, it could have an effect on runoff into the lake. You know, of course, a lake, these areas are kind of part of the headwaters of the Truckee River, which provides water to Reno and Sparks and into Pyramid Lake. So there's a question about water. There's a question about wildlife habitat. And a lot of those questions are being assessed right now, but it's probably too early to come to any kind of conclusion. Typically after a fire, a risk assessment team will go in and do a full ecologic assessment of the burned area and provide recommendations of of what type of management they see as fit, whether that's reseeding or certain types of vegetation management. But it is definitely a concern about what's burned. And I'll tell you personally, the fires burned in some some areas that I consider to be, you know, absolutely beautiful and pristine. And I'm wondering how those landscapes are going to change. You know, I saw that there were some spot fires there. And there's a lot of uncertainty. I think that's the word that I keep coming back to. Yeah. And one thing that really struck me too, when we were talking to Tim Brown with the Western Regional Climate Center was that he said that this is not going to be the last one that we see. I think one thing that we need to accept that this kind of fire can happen again. There's still plenty of vegetation in the Sierra to be burned. And you talk to almost any fire official and they'll tell you it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of of when these places, you know, are going to burn. The climate change predictions for by end of century is that the snow line is going to raise. So it doesn't necessarily mean it'll be drier, but it could be more though what we refer as uh, snow drought. So you could have more rain events, high elevation rain events, and a higher snowpack, and an earlier runoff of that snowpack. So there are some very key yeah, environmental changes expected from, from the snow perspective. And of course, this doesn't bode well for tourism and ski industry, you know, years, years from now. But I mean, they've already been seeing some hints of that recently, just the, the annual climate variability, you know, that we've been having, which again is all connected to the, to the climate change picture. This is maybe it's somewhat analogous to, you know, a large hurricane event or a flood event and, you know, along the Mississippi River, things like that. There's, there's only so much folks can do up front. It's, it's not like just surrounding a building, you know, with the fire crew and extinguishing it. It's much more complex and difficult. With that in mind, have you been talking to people about preparation or is everything kind of just up in the air right now because we're still focusing on fighting the Caldor fire? Well, from a journalist perspective, I think it's a little too early for me to write a story about the next fire. But I do think that there are going to be discussions about this fire for a long time. People are going to try to 
think about lessons learned. And I don't know where an ignition is going to start, when, what the wind is going to look like, what the fuel conditions are going to look like. But the fact is, is that we are living in a new reality as the climate changes that should in all aspects of life, really, but especially since you asked specifically about this, should should cause us to take a step back and and think about the assumptions that we've made for the last century, because the future is going to look different. Yeah. All right, Daniel. Well, thank you so much for talking with me and for all of the reporting that you've done. I'm sure we'll be keeping up on this. And if you want to find the moment to moment things that's going on with the fire, make sure to follow your local TV channels and, and, and NPR stations are always a great place to find that information. But we'll be kind of doing some of the more in-depth reporting. But I'm sure, Daniel, you'll be having plenty of stories coming out in the next couple weeks and months um, talking about the effects of these fires. So thanks. Thanks, Joey. After more than a year and a half of a thus far unending global pandemic, Colleges and universities in Nevada have slowly tipped the scales back toward the way things were, with in-person college experiences largely resurrected this fall amid widespread vaccine access. But one year after taking the top job at the Nevada System of Higher Education, Chancellor Melody Rose told me that things aren't quite back to normal just yet. I sat down with Chancellor Rose on Monday to discuss the system's response to COVID her thoughts on efforts to create vaccination requirements for students and faculty, and how some major legislative changes from 2021 could shape the future of Nevada's higher education system. You'll hear just a snippet of that interview here. But if you want to read more, you can find our conversation on the NevadaIndependent.com. So we would expect sometime in the next two weeks that students who are going to be enrolled at NC schools in the spring are going to get their first vaccine if they're doing the two shot. Do you think that this mandate was put in place too late, that, that there should have been some effort to get some kind of mandate in place for the fall rather than the spring? On the day that the Board of Health voted to create a required student vaccine, 80% of American colleges and universities had not made a decision about the vaccine mm-hmm. for students. So that puts us in the early adopters of that decision, not behind, not delayed, but in the early adopter camp. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to recognize that while there may have been some coverage of the colleges and universities that were really leading that conversation early, they were always doing so with an asterisk. Every one of them was saying, we would like to have required vaccines for students if the following conditions are met, action by the FDA to fully approve, action by either a board of health or a board of regents, depending on what your state statutes say around that issue. So those earliest systems that were getting headlines, I think we somewhere, somewhere in the narrative, we forgot to look at the fine print and recognize that they were still taking very cautious steps in that direction. So today, we're among that first 20 who has got that direction. And fortunately, because we saw in May that that possibility was on the horizon, we were early into planning for that possibility. So that once the Board of Health made its decision, we wouldn't be starting that conversation. 
Okay. So relative to that, because you're right, there was a lot of fine print. And I know the entry specifically, you know, you called out the FDA approval. And now, obviously, the Pfizer vaccine has gotten that FDA approval, but the mandate predates that. I think we saw the governor on August 5th makes his announcement, and we find out that just a day or two before, and she's own internal task force had recommended a mandate. So what was it about early August that the system was ready to move forward with at least suggesting to the Board of Health that there should be some kind of mandate. I think we have to remember how fluid the situation is, right? So if you look at what was happening in June, what was happening in the early days of July, we really, I think, understood nationally that we were in a pretty good position for fall semester, that the virus felt under control, and then bam, you get the Delta variant and you get the Department of Justice stepping in to signal that the FDA might move toward full implementation. So the landscape during a pandemic changes very quickly, and in some cases very dramatically, and you have to be prepared to pivot. Uh, And I think that's exactly what happened over the summer. Well, now, relative to the mood of students who are affected by this mandate, are there any concerns at the system level that there's going to be any significant chunk of students who are going to disenroll because of the mandate? Oh, gosh, I would hope not. I have a tremendous amount of compassion for those who have vaccine hesitancy, whether they're students, faculty, staff, general public. But I think we've also arrived at a timeline that allows for implementation that isn't hurried that can be thoughtful and measured and well supported by the evidence. And so so certainly my hope is that we don't lose a single student over the vaccine requirement. And I think on the other side of the fence, you might retain some students who were worried about the campus not being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So we're in unprecedented waters here. We've never experienced this. This is a hundred year event. And so with that in mind, I think we have to recognize that there is no playbook for how to manage a global pandemic. And so we are leading in really challenging times and being as responsive as we possibly can and trying to reassure students. As Dr. Brian Labus, I think, said last week, the most dangerous thing about getting your vaccine is driving to your pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then I want to move on to the faculty mandate or the possibility of a faculty mandate. Mm So faculty are already covered under the state's policy that requires state employees to either show proof of vaccination or to receive weekly COVID tests. Mm -hmm. So I guess before I get ahead of myself, do you think that there should be a faculty mandate? The, The issue of employee vaccines is, again, one that is a national conversation. And I think we we see here in that conversation, different entities, public, private, corporate, higher ed, entering into this conversation. And I give a lot of credit to our Board of Regents for wanting to have this conversation. So this is uncharted waters. And it's important to recognize that when a governing body is considering something that is unprecedented, Doing so through shared governance, through inclusion, listening to all stakeholders is a vital component to getting the policy right. And so I think having this on the board's agenda in September is appropriate. It is timely given the decision around students, right? That if we were going to say, gosh, we we all need to be in this together, doing so on the same timeline is prudent. So at the end of the day, I hope everyone gets vaccinated. I believe in vaccines. 
I believe in the science and I trust and respect our regents and their authority to make this decision. How should NSHE as an administration continue to handle the pandemic as it continues? Should there be a focus on sort of doing everything possible to get in-person instruction back, at least as much as possible? Well, absolutely. And and I would quote my colleague at Provost TV, who said, our number one job is the health, safety, and well-being of our entire community. But that is followed by a very close second, which is maintaining exceptional in-person learning. Because as we've all observed in the past year and a half, right, from pre-K up through PhD, learning virtually has been challenging in a number of ways. And I, I want to share that this is one of the reasons that we launched our mental health task force in January, is that I was hearing from students that they were really struggling. And so I, I want to answer your question directly by saying yes, We are driven by keeping learning in person to the extent that we can do so safely and well, but we also need to take great care with the well-being of our populations and understand that as we are welcoming the community back into our communal spaces, they are not necessarily the same as they were before the pandemic. And I think we have to be really careful and really thoughtful and show a tremendous amount of grace to the students, staff, and faculty who have experienced these stressors for the last 18 months. And I guess while we're on the subject of the mental health task force, so the purpose of that task force is to produce actionable recommendations, is mm-hmm. that correct? So to that end, have there been recommendations that have been that have emerged at this point and then going forward, sort of what is the purpose of the task force as mm-hmm. we enter this new phase of the pandemic? Well, one of the things that we've been doing has been to take an inventory of existing practices on every campus because there are good things happening on our campuses and thoughtful responses to mental health concerns on our campuses, and we want to surface those and scale those. One of the earliest ones to come to my attention was the request to put emergency information, suicide hotline numbers, for example, on NCHI IDs, and that's something we're now trying to scale system-wide. And that's a, a simple but effective tool so that if you have a student in distress, wherever he or she might be, They've got the critical information to get help on the spot. And so that is is one recommendation that I know we're moving toward. The other, which takes an investment, and I thought this was very wise and I appreciated the, the other formal recommendation that I received, was to do a survey of our students. Because you never want to come up with solutions if you haven't actually talked to students. And we're working now through a variety of external partners to look for funding to do a full system-wide survey from students to ask them what's working, what's not, what do you need from us, so that we can make data-informed decisions about policy going forward. If you want to read more about the conversation I had with Chancellor Melody Rose, head to the NevadaIndependent.com. One thing Vegas is known for is quickie weddings. Chapels along the strip, the king of rock and roll marrying people in a white sequin jumpsuit, drive throughs where people can get married in their car, and even the ever-popular Taco Bell Cantina, where couples can enjoy a burrito supreme and carry a bouquet of sauce packets while tying the knot. 
But when the COVID-19 pandemic shut down much of the state last year, the wedding industry took a blow. Though many chapels remained open, the combination of limited capacity, a pause on international tourism, and a general downward trend of people getting married led to a 30-year low in marriage licenses issued. But as coronavirus-related restrictions ease, Las Vegas is seeing somewhat of a return to normalcy. Not only does Clark County expect to issue its 5 millionth wedding license within the next six months, but officials say that 2021 is likely to see more marriage certificates issued than either of the past two years. Reporter Sean Galanka has more on the story. More than 128,000 marriage licenses were issued in Clark County in the peak year of 2004. Since then, the county has issued thousands less every year, with the number of wedding licenses reaching its lowest point of the last 30 years in 2020. Last year's numbers were significantly affected by the state shutting down and the tourism industry grinding to a halt during the COVID-19 pandemic. But weddings are once again on the rise in 2021. Clark County Clerk Lynn Goya, whose office oversees marriage licensing, spoke with me about the uptick in couples tying the knot during a recent event her office held in conjunction with the Las Vegas Wedding Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, actually, we um, ever since we reopened after we closed for COVID, we've seen just a boom um, of couples coming to Las Vegas to get married. So the end of last year was very good, and then this year has gone great so far. We expect for the first time in 20 years, except for a couple exceptions, um, to be on an uptick. Even as the rest of the city's hospitality industry struggled throughout 2020, Goya said she saw people continue to visit Las Vegas to attend weddings. This is a really important industry for Clark County. Um, it's a two and a half billion dollar industry per year. So it generates thousands of jobs, hundreds of small business rely on it. So uh, what we saw during COVID was that the wedding industry really kind of helped pull Las Vegas through because people kept coming for weddings when they couldn't come for conventions or other things. And so a lot of people have you know, told me anecdotally that you know, weddings saved their business or saved their income. Although Goya said that the stereotype of the spur of the moment, drunk Vegas wedding is a misconception, she said that the city's wedding industry allows people to get married without a lot of the typical hassle, such as finding different vendors. I think some people do like how simple and easy it is. They can come and get a license, go find a chapel and get married within an hour if they want. So there is some, a lot of charm to that elopement atmosphere. But we also have, you know, 500 people come for a wedding. We have huge weddings, very elaborate. As weddings continue apace across Las Vegas, Goya said the county is on track to issue more wedding licenses in 2021 than it issued in either of the past two years. We just see so many people um, coming to Clark County to get married, and it seems to be growing every month. We're on track to do almost 80,000 uh, marriage licenses this year, and I think it's going to just be a great year for us. Many businesses in the wedding industry, from photo booth companies to caterers, continue to benefit from that uptick in business. But as restrictions on tourists coming into the U.S. from other countries remain in place, and the Delta variant of COVID-19 spreads throughout Southern Nevada, Arnold Garcia, the owner of the Love Story Chapel in downtown Las Vegas, still has concerns. 
At the same time, we still don't have like the international traffic that we would normally have. So, um, so I'm waiting for kind of everything. And then with the Delta variant, I'm still on eggshells. I still don't feel like we're completely out of the uh, deep waters yet. Despite his concerns, Garcia has kept his chapel open throughout the entirety of the pandemic. He considers the ability to marry essential for both personal reasons and practical ones, such as for health insurance. You can't stop love, you know, people are going to uh, continue to get married, continue. Uh, it's just more, you know, I feel like they could all shut it all back down again if variants keep happening and, you know, people aren't. Uh, adhering to the kind of the rules or the mandates or whatever so um i don't know it's still scary i'm just a nervous person in general so i just you know want to just keep doing you know the next right thing you know even as pandemic restrictions ease some trends from the past year may be here to stay charity griego is a licensed officiant and runs a business with her partner brian mills called theme las vegas weddings that offers offbeat wedding packages including ones with a zombie theme or with elvis officiating griego says she has seen more small ceremonies held over the past year i do see that uh, the weddings the smaller weddings have increased because so many people from all over the country had to cancel their large, massive parties in order to elope here. So After getting engaged to her partner in late August, Griego hopes to soon join the millions of other couples who have tied the knot in Las Vegas. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's an amazing experience. We're trying to wrap our head around it because we've been engaged for probably about three days right now. Um, I mean, the most amazing part of my wedding is going to be marrying Brian. To read more about how the Vegas wedding industry is faring during the pandemic, you can find Sean's full story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. The story was written and produced by Sean Galanka and myself and edited by me, Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Daniel Rothberg, Carlos Arce, Tim Brown, Chancellor Melody Rose, Sean Galanka, Lynn Goya, Arnold Garcia, and Charity Griego for being on the show this week. We also wanted to thank Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendells for their editorial help on the show. They also help edit our monthly newsletter, Soundcheck, that you should definitely subscribe to if you're not getting enough of the podcast. Make sure to leave us a review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, wedding veil stories, best techniques to fight off Glarbnar the Terrible, or whatever else you have to tell us about at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week for our 200th episode. I watched Brazil. Have you seen Ooh, Brazil? I have. Yes, a classic. That was a that was a trip. I yes, liked the movie, the Terry movies. but I think the podcast has ruined me. The audio mixing in the movie is so bad that I could I, I was like actively not enjoying it just because the audio was messed up. Yeah. Yeah.